the unforgettable transformation of Jesus on the mountain where Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John. This is followed by a remarkable exorcism at the foot of the mountain where Jesus casts a demon out of a young boy. They're on the road again. They're traveling again in the the region of Galilee. And Jesus continues to give them some very hard teaching to swallow, some very hard instruction and and training. This is often called Jesus' great discipleship discourse in these chapters, 8 through 10, where Jesus is teaching his, his followers, his disciples, the apostles, about what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Christ. And so Jesus is turning in in these teachings, he's turning the world and the world's value systems upside down. His teaching is is radical. It's mind-blowing for them in their day as well as for us in our day. Even our world today, our world is about me, me, me. Everything is me-focused. I mean, even uh, even if you look at the church today, much of what is called Christianity today exists to give me eternal life, to to, uh, to increase my physical and spiritual abilities, to increase my power or, or influence, my prestige. We've made everything so about us. Jesus is currently in the midst of shattering these ideas, these self-centered uh, perspectives. And in these following verses that we'll read and study this morning, Jesus gives the disciples several marks of what it looks like or what it should be like to be a disciple of Christ, to be a follower of Christ. He's teaching his disciples that these seven traits, these characteristics will uh, be markers for their, their lives after he has died and has resurrected and ascended to be with the Father. This is what their lives should look like. This should characterize them. And so I think this morning for us, church family, it would serve as a lens for us, for us to look through these markers, these seven characteristics in our own lives. Do our lives look like these markers? And again, this morning, we, we would not want to hold these up as some kind of legalistic checkbox that we would look at it and go, oh yeah, I did that this week, I've got the, I've got the check, or oh, I've, I've done this this past week, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this tomorrow actually so that I can, I can have the check on my checkbox. But instead, over the course of time, as you look back on your life, as God has been sanctifying you by the work of the Spirit, as God has been teaching you and training you and instructing you in the Word of God, are these things that you're seeing, are these things evidenced? Uh, in your life as a follower of Christ. I think it's helpful for us to have uh, times of reflection like that where we look at the Word of God and allow the Word of God to look into us. And so this morning, seven marks for us uh, on what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. Number one, a disciple will hear and believe the gospel. A disciple will hear and believe the gospel. Look at verses 30 through 32 with me. It says, And they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Dear Jesus is giving the disciples the second of three predictions that he will make concerning his death and his resurrection. Jesus' goal is to prepare the disciples for what lies ahead, uh, for what is in the immediate future. But more importantly, Jesus' intention here is to share with them the greatest news in all of the world, the gospel, that he's going to die a death that they deserve, that the father is purposefully killing his son so that he does not have to kill them and us today. He's sacrificing his son on the cross. He will be raised again in life, resurrected life. But the disciples, they don't understand that. They've missed that now twice. 
They missed it the first time Jesus taught them before the transfiguration. They miss it here. And, but in fairness to them, I think we have to step back before we point fingers at them and just say, man, how did you miss it? How did you miss it? But realize that we're coming at this, we're reading this, we're studying this uh, after the cross. We've seen the cross. We've seen the resurrection in the word of God. We know the end of the story. We know that he's resurrected. They've not experienced that yet. They don't have the framework to understand a, a dying Messiah. They have no category for an executed Christ. No comprehension that the Son of God in Daniel, prophecies of Daniel, is the same one as the suffering servant that we read about this morning in Isaiah 53 that Michael led us in. They don't, they don't understand. They've not connected that yet. And so they miss it. Not only were, did they not understand, the text tells us that they were afraid to ask. They didn't want to ask for clarification. They didn't want to ask Jesus to elaborate. They, they were perhaps maybe focused on knowing what they're about to be arguing about. They're perhaps maybe focused upon attaining a seat of authority by Christ. I'm going to be on his right hand when he's the, when he's the, the king that's established his kingdom and he, he kicks Rome out of control. I'm going to be his right-hand man. And so if I speak up right here and ask a question, he may think that, that I don't understand. And so I may not get that place of authority. So I'm just going to keep quiet and act like I know what's going on. The text tells us they didn't, they didn't know and, and they, didn't, they didn't even ask. They didn't even ask for clarification. Church family, a disciple must hear and understand the gospel. It is impossible. Listen to me closely. It is impossible for us to be a disciple of Jesus and miss the gospel. Now, we may not have all the answers. We might not have all the answers about the end times or about uh, how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. And there's a bunch of things in the Old Testament that we don't have figured out, and those things are kind of confusing. We may not understand the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and salvation, about how faith, our faith, relates to other world religions. We may not have all the answers to everything that the Bible would have for us, but friends, don't miss this. We must understand the gospel. We must hear and believe the good news. We can't miss that. That's fundamental. And, and lately, I've, I've, I've been around a few different groups uh, in the last even couple weeks that would call themselves Christians, Christian movements, Christian organizations, even some churches that would claim the name of Christ, but there's no talk of gospel. There's no talk of the death and resurrection of Christ. There's no talk of the blood. There's no such thing as an anemic Christianity. There's no such thing as a bloodless Christianity. Without the cross of Christ, we are hopeless, friends. Don't miss the gospel. If you can't articulate anything, if you can't even tell someone your name, be able to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is one, the Son of God, who died in their place and took their sins to the cross and rose from the dead to conquer death, hell, and the grave, to conquer sin for all eternity. Don't miss the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But friends, there's, there's good news that comes even after the good news that we, that we can't miss the gospel. The, the disciple of Christ must hear and believe the gospel but here's some further good news. He gives us his spirit for exactly that purpose. Now, the disciples at this point, they hadn't experienced Pentecost yet, but we do. We, we live in light of the cross, resurrection, and Pentecost. The Holy Spirit indwells each one of his followers. And, and in Jesus, he doesn't just expect us all to figure it out. Now, he doesn't just expect us to, to read enough books or to read the Bible long enough that it just clicks and that we, in our own strength, have the answers to understand the gospel. He's come and he's, living, he's lived inside of you. He's He's uh, dwelling in you so that he can teach you, instruct you, convict you, and cause you to believe. That's what John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus is telling us, he's instructing us. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name, Jesus says. He will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. As Jesus is teaching his disciples in John, the same is true for us. When the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, he teaches us the gospel. He teaches us this great truth. He doesn't expect us to conjure it up on our own. That's really good news. So as they get on the road again with Jesus, they've experienced both of these incredible encounters on the mountain, the transfiguration, the exorcism at the foot of the mountain. They're back on the road with Jesus, and Jesus begins teaching them again, and this is where he starts. It may for the disciples seem like a broken record, like he keeps going back to this thing about death. What's he talking about? Why does Jesus go there? Because it's most important. You can't miss this, friends. Fail at exorcisms. But don't fail at understanding the gospel. That's what this is on the heels of. They just failed to, because of a a prayerless effort at exorcism, they failed in ministry. But he's teaching them, don't don't miss this. Don't fail at this most important piece of news, that I'm going to die and be resurrected for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't miss that, disciples. And there's more good news. So the good news just keeps piling up. Here's more good news. When we don't understand, we don't have to be in fear of asking him. We don't have to cower in fear that he may come down on us for coming to him with questions. This Savior is one who can be trusted. This Lord is one who is approachable and delights in having us run to him with our fears, with our questions, with our doubts, with our anxieties, with our worries. He delights in having his children come to him. You don't have to fear and not ask questions. He's approachable. So number one, a disciple must hear and believe the gospel. Number two, as we continue the text, verse 33, a disciple will be a servant. A disciple will be a servant. Verse 33, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Can we just pause for a second and and observe? Uh, Is Jesus asking this because he's clueless, because he's in the dark? (laughs) No. He knows what they're discussing. He wants them to come out and, and admit and confess what they're discussing. So it continues, verse 34, but they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. <laughs> so they get to Capernaum. They get where they're, they're going to, and Jesus flat calls them out. Hey, guys, back there on the road when we were traveling here, what were you guys talking about? What was it that you guys were discussing kind of, kind of uh, under your breath? Like what was, what was that conversation about? Nothing. You could have heard crickets in the background. Why? Because they're arguing, they're guilty of of arguing about who's the greatest among them. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Like, like you just witnessed Jesus transformed in his glory, transfigured before you. You heard the voice from the Father from from the cloud. This is my son. Listen to him. You just watched Jesus go down the mountain and perform this exorcism, this this demon-possessed boy. He radically changes this boy's life, and you still have the audacity to argue amongst yourselves about who's the greatest. This is unthinkable. You can just imagine their words as they're they're arguing amongst themselves about who's going to be on Jesus' right hand, who's going to be his right-hand man, and when the time comes, who's the greatest among them? The arrogance, the selfishness here. You can imagine the the sorrow this must have brought to Jesus' already burdened soul, right? They've been with him now for three years. They've been following him. They've been listening to him. They've been watching him do miracles. He's facing the most extreme humiliation and suffering that a person could imagine on this planet in the crucifixion. 
and his followers that he's invested his life into, the apostles, the disciples that he's been training, are arguing about who's the greatest. They're acting no different than the, the petty politicians in Capernaum or the, the hypocrites in Herod's court. That's who his followers, his disciples that he's poured his life into, that's what they're acting like. And so Jesus calls them out and they don't utter a word. They sit in shameful silence. They're about to receive a great lesson from their teacher, from Christ, about what it means to be his disciple. But I can just imagine Jesus just allowing that silence to hang in the air for a moment. Letting that sink in. Letting the weight of that fall for a second. And then in verse 35, it says that he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And this was incredibly countercultural for their day, and it is for ours as well. I told you Jesus was about to take everything in their world and turn it upside down, flip it on its head, and this was definitely upside down for them, as it is for us. Servant to all was unthinkable. Uh, New Testament scholar uh, Schlatter says here that, talking about their time, their culture, their world, at all points in worship, so in religious life, in the administration of justice, so civic life, at all meals, in all dealings, there constantly arose the question of who was greater. And estimating the honor that was due each person was a task that had to be constantly fulfilled and was felt to be very important in this day. It was a part of the culture just to know status and rank, to understand who was first in line, who was head of the table. And Jesus takes this idea of rank and completely throws it in the trash and says that if you're going to be my disciple, you, your, life, your life must be a service to all people. Your life must be a gift to all people. You're a servant to everyone. He uses a word here that we use all the time in the church. We're going to elect some later this summer. He calls them diakonos or deacons, servants. He says that's what your life should look like. You should be a, a deacon, a servant. The word literally means in the original language a, a waiter of tables. We usually talk about this when we ordain deacons. Just to help us remember what God's called uh, all of us to be. And we recognize certain men in the church to, to, to fill the office of deacon. But that's what we're talking about when we talk about a deacon as a servant. And that's what he's calling them to be. That's what he calls each one of his followers to be. Literally, one who is a waiter of tables or one who washes others' feet. One who changes soiled undergarments. That's the original meaning of that word. It's not a glamorous job. It's not a glorious job in man's eyes, but it's great in God's eyes. And it's exactly what he's calling his disciples to do. That's what he calls them to do while they're arguing about who's the greatest. So ask yourself, church family, do you have a place or do you have places of humble, maybe even hidden service for your church, for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, for your neighbor, for the lost person on your street? Is your life characterized more by service to others or receiving service from others? What do our lives look like, church family? Jesus continues to drive this point home by acting out a parable in front of them. Jesus uses parables all the time. A, a, a physical or a, a, a visible picture of something he's trying to teach them. Here, he, he acts it out. He, in verse, continuing in verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now in the Aramaic, which Jesus spoke, the word here for child and servant that he just talked about are indeed the same word. 
They're the same word. And so when Jesus says he takes this child and places him before the disciples, he's essentially saying, you must receive children, servants, disciples, fellow Christians, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with the same open arms and love with which you see me physically holding this child before you. He's acting it out. He's showing them a picture of what it would look like to serve others. And then he says, and when you're obedient in this, receiving him, then you're actually receiving the one who sent him, the Father. Why would Jesus say this? Why would Jesus say it like this? Because Jesus, along with the Father, the Spirit, resides in children of God. We are the, the body of Christ, the wondrous body of Christ, the church. And so practically speaking, when we welcome other children, other servants, other disciples of Christ, in the name of Jesus, we're welcoming Christ himself. So we serve all. We serve those in our community. We serve those without thought of, of rank, of status, of influence, of fame, of accomplishment. We'll be the lovers of everyone, especially those that are the body of Christ. We serve people in our community and in our world with no standing. Children, orphans, we'll talk much more about in two Sundays. Lepers, homeless, the mentally impaired, the physically disabled, the aged, refugees. We love those who have no rank or status in our culture. And in doing so, we receive an audience with God himself. That's what Christ is telling us. So apparently, Jesus is teaching this. Jesus is instructing this. This is incredibly convicting. John speaks up, right? John is either under conviction or either thinks he has it right, one or the other, and he speaks up. Uh, our third point, a disciple will be on Christ's side and before those that are on Christ's side. A disciple will be on Christ's side and will be for those that are on Christ's side. Look at verses 38 through 40. We see John speak up. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Here we have an example. John gets just outright jealous. There's some intolerance here with John. This man, we don't know his name. We're not even given his, uh, his name, but he's apparently a believer in Jesus. He is, he's, he's, he's perhaps not as informed as the disciples. He's not been traveling with the disciples. They don't know his name even, so he's not a part of the in group. He's not a part of the, the inner circle, the, the 12, but he's a believer in Jesus. He's, he's someone who's placed his trust in Jesus. He's casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they tell him to stop, <laughs> but he would not. He would not stop. So he continues. And here's what's really interesting. Here's what's in, 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 that we should observe this morning. Success in doing it. His success in doing it. He's experiencing power through the name of Jesus, God's power to do ministry in the name of Christ, which is supremely ironic in light of the disciples' failure to do the exact same thing last week, right? So at the foot of the mountain, they fail to do the exact same, that this, same thing that this man is doing. And John speaks up here, jealous, inflamed. He thinks maybe that he's going to be, you know, experience some praise from Jesus or be affirmed by Jesus for defending the group, right? And he's in for a rude awakening. And we continue in verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus rebukes the disciples, particularly John here. The mark of a disciple is one that is on Jesus' side. And is for those that are on Jesus' side. 
Jesus says, if he does things in my name, if he's doing ministry in my name, it seems that he's doing ministry through the power of God. Could it be that that's evidence of my call upon his life? Could it be that, that he is one of us, though he's not been traveling along with us? Don't hinder him, John. Join him. Don't stop him, John. Rejoice with him. Kent Hughes in his commentary says this, The criterion for ministry is not tradition or denomination or style, but Jesus' name being lifted up and glorified. We rejoice in this. And I think we, as we look around our world today, there, and even in churches, even in churches within the same denomination, the church today, it, it, it almost feels like a turf war, like there becomes this rivalry or competition. It should not be that way, church family. It should not be the case. We're on the same team. We're on Christ's team. We're, we're, we're championing and raising the banner of Christ together. There's no corporate ladder. There's no climbing the ladder in the Christian walk. We don't covet another Christian's ministry or call. We don't covet another church's success. We, we rejoice and we praise God in it. And when one is obedient, when a brother and sister are, are obedient, we celebrate that. When a brother or sister has a difficulty or a failure, we weep with them in that. We are concerned over that. We, we, we pray for them or offer counsel in that. We're on the same friend, team, friends. Jesus continues this idea in the next verse, which is our fourth mark, our fourth point. A disciple will be characterized by acts of kindness. Number four, a, a disciple will be characterized by acts of kindness. Look at verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is not a hard concept to understand. He's basically saying that there is reward. There is blessing for even small acts of kindness toward your fellow brother or sister in Christ, toward the Christian, the disciple, the servant that's serving along with you, that's on the same team as you're on. This sort of demeanor, this sort of posture in life should characterize the Christian. That we would act and participate in these small acts of kindness. Service to others is liberating. It frees us from selfishness. It frees us from self-centeredness. It moves us from being self-focused and it puts our eyes on others who are in need of Christ. That's what he's saying here. These small acts of kindness. Even, even sharing a cup of water with your brother. This is the attitude that John should have had towards the gentleman that he saw engaging in successful ministry in Jesus' name. You should, have, you should have came along and helped him, served him, served with him, loved on him, encouraged him. So church family, what kind of acts of kindness will we engage in this week? As you go back out into your work week tomorrow, your school week tomorrow, your neighborhood or community tomorrow, what kind of acts of kindness will you engage in toward your brothers and sisters in Christ, to fellow disciples along the, the journey toward Christ, toward your neighbor who doesn't know Christ? Will we be characterized by those kinds of acts of kindness? So number four, a disciple will be characterized by acts of kindness. Number five, number five, a disciple will help and not harm other disciples. The disciple will help and not harm other disciples. Look at verse 42. If whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone stone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. 
Now, little ones here is not talking just about kids. Again, remember the context of what Jesus has been teaching them. He's taken this child, this little one, and placed them before him as a, as a picture of a, of a servant, of a disciple. He even says it here in, in, in the verse we just read, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. He's talking about uh, Christians, believers, followers of Christ. And that's the context in which he's talking. Jesus is warning them then of the danger of doing anything that would cause another Christian, servant, disciple to stumble. They would have easily understood this stern warning. They would have caught the picture that Jesus gave them as he talks about a millstone being hung around the neck and being cast into the sea. This is something that history tells us uh, that the Romans had recently done uh, just before this event. These men, hearing Jesus' teaching, would have still remembered it, would have had the, the picture fresh in their memory from when Rome uh, decided to uh, disband this revolt by throwing the leaders of the revolt uh, into the sea with millstones around their neck. This would have been something they would have pictured and remembered. The Roman historian Suetonius describes the executions of, of the, the worst kinds of criminals in this manner. They had millstones hung around their neck and threw over into the sea. What a horrifying image that Christ uses here. The picture that we get of somebody being drugged down into the, the cold uh, dark sea, incapable of doing anything, that their life is being snatched from them and they're, they're helpless as they're drugged down into the sea and as water fills their lungs and they suffocate. But that's the picture. Those graphic terms, those graphic images are the ones that Christ uses to communicate how evil it is for a believer to cause another believer to fall into sin. How many times, church family, has someone been turned off to Christ or the church, turned off to the gospel by someone who names the name of Christ but has an unforgiving spirit, someone who uh, engages in a dishonest business transaction and yet they claim the name of Christ, someone who is, is crude or uses a crass language and, and that, that language comes from the mouth of a Christian. Someone who gossips with the same lips that they worship Jesus with on Sunday. How many times, church family, has that happened? Shame on us. If we minister in the name of Christ, we must walk what we're talking. We must, our feet, our hands, our mouths must be doing the same thing that the Bible says they should be doing. Our lives must live up to what the gospel preaches. Someone is watching you. Some will be watching you tomorrow. Some will be watching us as we go out into our week tomorrow to see how we respond to situations and circumstances in our lives. Are you causing them to stumble? Are you pointing them to Christ? After Jesus discusses our responsibility here not to cause others to stumble, he naturally moves the conversation into the direction of our responsibility to keep ourselves from sin, which is our sixth mark that we see in the text this morning. Number six, a disciple will perform radical surgery to avoid habitual sin. A disciple will perform radical surgery to avoid habitual sin. Look at verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. Here Jesus is talking about personal holiness 
in terms of amputation, removing body parts, physical body parts that would keep you from sin. And sadly, in the history of the church, there have been those that have taken this literally. A.J. Gossip, a Scottish preacher, tells the story of a seminary student, a bright seminary student, he says, who went uh, one night, went crazy, and took a razor blade and cut off his hand. And the next day, Gossip, the, the pastor, Pastor Gossip, sees the young man and he's laughing hysterically, almost in insanity. And as the preacher goes up to him, he, all he can say is, I did it. I did it right. And now I can look Jesus in the face. No, friend. No. Now you just have no hand. Origin of Alexander emasculated himself in an attempt to overcome sensual desires. Long after, or not long after that, the Council of Nicaea outlawed this practice for good reasons. This kind of literal mutilation is not what the Bible is talking about. This type of literal mutilation of the flesh is, is contrary to Scripture. And we know that the Bible speaks of that. So we know that this is not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about literally cutting off things because, don't miss this, it's possible to cut off your foot, to cut off your hand, and to gouge out your eye, and further, like origin, to neuter yourself and still be the most materialistic, lustful, arrogant person in the community. That's not what the Bible's talking about. Jesus isn't, ta isn't talking about physical mutilation. He's talking about spiritual mortification. He's talking about killing things in your life, habits, practices, sinful things in your life before they kill you. And you think about his logic here. You think about where Christ takes this, and it's as gory as it is, it makes complete sense. We cut off sinful, harmful practices out of our lives. The hand symbolizes what we do. You do things with your hands. The feet symbolize where we go. The eye symbolizes what we see. And so in this, in this graphic description, Jesus is picturing for us all of life, where we go, what we do, what we see. If any of it is sinful, cut it off. Cut it off before it has time to root in your heart and choke you out and kill you. And you follow Jesus' logic here. It's better for you by the Spirit's power to rid this fleeting life that we live of ungodly things instead of going on bearing those sins to an eternal hell. Half-hearted effort here will not cut it. Half-hearted effort here will not cut it. There must be a severing. There must be a gouging out of sin. Do you hear how final that is? Do you hear how irreversible that is? At the sake of, 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 being, of, of being gory, think of that hand, that foot, or that eye as it hits the floor. Thump. It's done. It's final. It's irreversible. And I know that's gory, but that's exactly Jesus' point, that you would be that serious about your own sin, that you would be that serious about the habits in your life that are leading you away from Christ, that you would cut them off finally and irreversibly. And Jesus' answer, Jesus' logic here, calls us to ask some questions of our own lives, of ourselves, as a disciple of Christ. Are there things in our lives, are there sins in our lives that right now warrant radical surgery? Places that we go that we have no business being in. Things that we do, things that we watch or read that our eyes have no business looking at. Texts or emails or social media conversations that we should never be dabbling in. Cut them off, friends. 
attitudes, anger in our lives that we have no business being a part of. Cut them off, friends. Jesus' metaphors here demonstrate to us that we must be willing to endure pain to conquer these sinful habits. Yes, it hurts to cut off a foot or to tear out an eye. In movies where things happen to eyes, I just can't even watch it. It, it, Even in movies when you know it's fake, I just have to turn away. Why? Because it's painful. Our eyes are are a place that we experience pain. And and yes, it's painful. That's why Jesus gives this as an example. It hurts to give up an addiction. It hurts to, 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 to cut off a friendship or a relationship that's toxic in our life. It hurts to to give up a behavior or a a practice that we enjoy, a habit that we enjoy. But friends, this morning, if God's showing you something, even in your own heart and life, if by the Spirit's work this morning, He's showing you places in your life that you need to cut off, don't delay. Deal with it right now. Let today be surgery day. And let the rest of our lives be post-op, where we, by the Spirit's power, are, are conquering, getting rid of, cutting off these sins, these habits. So number six, a disciple will perform radical surgery to avoid habitual sin, a lifestyle of sin. Number seven, a disciple will be preserved and refined by fire. A disciple will be preserved and refined by fire. Look at verses 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. All will be salted with fire. Here Jesus is making it clear that everyone will encounter fire and salt in a a way, in a manner that's consistent with their relationship with Christ. Everyone, no one gets a pass But depending on your relationship with Christ will affect, will determine the way in which you encounter this fire, right? So unbelievers, those that are not in Christ, unending fires of final judgment in a literal place called hell. Jesus believed in hell. We don't hear a lot about hell these days, but Jesus believed in it. So we shouldn't avoid it. We shouldn't be afraid to talk about it like it's going to offend people. Yes, it's offensive. Jesus believed it, so we should teach it. For the believer, though, For the believer, it will be the preserving and refining fires of trials and suffering that mark our journey in discipleship. As believers, we can expect to suffer. That's what Christ is saying. Not an eternity in hell like the unbeliever, but on this earth we will suffer. And even that is for our good and for God's glory. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, living during uh, the the 40s and and, and, uh, World War II, said this. Suffering, then, is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering of Christ and is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. Now, if you don't know who Bonhoeffer is, maybe you've never heard of him, he was a spy who was sent in to oppose Hitler in World War II, Nazi Germany, He was caught and sent to a Nazi concentration camp where he suffered. He was tortured and then was taken and executed by hanging. But before his death, he wrote these words, that suffering is a joy and a token of his grace. We don't think of suffering like that. I don't, I'm just confess to you, I don't think of suffering like that. That suffering be a joy and a token of his grace. And this is what what Christ is saying to us. For every person alive, you will endure fires. 
either the fires of hell, not in Christ, or for those that are in Christ, those fires that will refine you, that will turn you, that will shape you into the image of Christ. And those are a grace to us. He says this, salt is as good as long as it can serve its purpose. He continues on this idea. Well, what's the purpose of salt? We think of salt as an additive to our food to make it taste good, right? That's not what they would have thought. Salt in that day, they didn't have freezers or refrigerators, so salt was used to preserve food. It was used to preserve meats and different things. And so Jesus is saying that as his disciples, that will be enduring suffering. At the same time, we should have a positive and preserving impact, effect on the world around us. That's the, kind of, that's the type of, of, of effect that we'd have through our attitudes as followers of Christ, a preserving effect as we're being refined by fire. And so to put all this back into context, these seven marks, these seven uh, marks of a disciple that we should be looking for, remember, the disciples have been arguing about who's the greatest among them. They've been having this debate about who's the greatest. In the midst of that, John speaks up and he says, hey, Jesus, guess what? I know you're going to applaud me for this. I stopped the guy because he wasn't among us, but he was doing things in your name. And in the midst of all of that bragging and self-centeredness and selfishness and arrogance, Jesus uses those shortcomings to teach them and us today, be at peace with one another. Love your brother and sister in Christ. Be humble and avoid stumbling and avoid being a stumbling block to them. Serve with them. Don't bicker and gripe over status or position. Don't be arrogant and self-centered. Pull for your brothers and sisters. Be a team. Be about the work of Christ. Cut off sin. Rid your life of sin. He's reminding them all of this in the context of a conversation about who's the greatest. Be a servant to all. We started our first one. If you look back, if you're taking notes, at your first one, we started this morning by saying that a disciple of Christ the mark of a disciple of Christ is one who will hear and believe the gospel. And so to come full circle this, this morning as we conclude our time together, to come full circle this morning, yes, a disciple is one who will hear and believe the gospel, but in God's grace, this is how good God is, not only do we, do we hear it and believe it, but God has given us opportunities to see the gospel of Jesus Christ at work. And that's what we do when we participate in communion. That's exactly what we're doing this morning as we come to the Lord's table. We are the covenanted body of Jesus Christ here at Poplar Spring. Those sons and daughters that have been bought by the blood of Christ, the people of God, the church. And we celebrate the gospel as we see it represented to us in the elements. We see it and we see a picture of the gospel. So we hear and believe the gospel and in his grace he gives us pictures of it in communion and in baptism. This is why it's a joy to get to celebrate communion to the church together. It's his grace to us that he's given us a picture, a reminder of what he's done for us. And so this morning, as we enter into a time where we'll worship around this table, let me remind you of a few things. Remind you of a few things as we prepare our hearts for taking communion together. Number one, ask yourselves, am I a follower of Christ? Am I a Christian? Am I one who is a disciple of Christ? Have you repented and turned of your sin? Look in your own heart and ask God to reveal any unconfessed sin. Is there anything in your life, any sin that needs to be radically cut off, cut out through radical surgery? Repent. Be forgiven before receiving this bread and cup. Also, are you reconciled with your brothers and sisters? Is there animosity? Is there sin between a brother and a brother or a sister and a sister? 1 Corinthians 11 verse 27 says this. 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Friends, there's a lot of things that you can be guilty in in this world and in this life. But friends, don't be guilty of this. Don't be guilty of, of drinking and taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. If you're not yet a Christian, we would ask you to not participate. This is for uh, those that are Christians, those that have given their lives to Christ. And so uh, we would invite you to just to sit and contemplate and think on the cross and what Christ has done for you. And if you are a Christian, even if you're not a member of Poplar Spring, but you are a believer in Jesus Christ of like faith and practice, we invite you to take communion with us. Second thing to think on, not only your life and have you surrendered your life to Christ, are you a believer? But second, are you looking at the cross of Jesus Christ? This celebration is not something that we take lightly. We don't just do this haphazardly or thoughtlessly. Prepare your heart. Reflect on the cross. Spend time this morning as we're preparing for communion thinking about the shed blood of Christ. There is no gospel apart from the shed blood of Christ. There is no hope of salvation apart from his sacrifice. Think on that this morning as you're preparing to receive communion. And then thirdly, are you thinking about the family that you're a part of? As we celebrate communion together, we get a picture not only of the shed blood of Christ, the broken body of Christ, and what he's done for us on Calvary, but what he's made us as the people of God, that he's brought us together as a family, that through his blood, through his broken body, we're a part of, uh, of, of the body of Christ here at Poplar Spring. There's a deeper level of communion. As we commune with him, we also commune in, in fellowship with one another through his blood and body. This is a reminder that he shed his blood, that his body was broken as a physical picture, a picture for us of that, but also of the union and fellowship that we enjoy together as the people of God.